be in Exodus 3 this morning. Now, when I was a boy, I did not grow up in church. Uh, I did not grow up going to service. I did not grow up. This wasn't part of my story. Um, Now, I am a Mexican, and Mexicans historically are generally Catholic. So my family had a Catholic, um, I guess, roots. But our part of it just didn't, it wasn't wasn't a priority for us. My grandma would take us maybe once every other year. It was very, very rare we'd ever go to Mass. And we did go to Mass. It was always in Spanish, which I can't speak. So I just sat there like, I don't know what anyone is saying. Uh, It was great. Um, So even though I didn't grow up in church, there was one movie I would watch as a kid. It'd be on TBS as I grew up. And for some reason, even though I wasn't a Christian, I didn't go to church and read the Bible, I would always watch this movie in its entirety. And it was a long one, like three hours without commercials, four and a half with, you know what I'm saying? It was the old classic, The Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston played Moses. Yul Brenner was Pharaoh. And you know what's funny? Whenever I read this story, it's always Yul Brenner in my head. He was a great pharaoh. Charlton Heston's been replaced, but Yul Brenner, still pharaoh. So I'd watch this movie as a kid, and I don't know why I felt drawn to it, but as I watched this movie as a young boy, I, I got an impression from the film. And the impression I received was simply this. I thought, wow, this Moses guy is a great man who did great things for God. Now, then I, I grow up, I meet Jesus and become a Christian. I, I, I start following Jesus. I got going to church and hearing sermons. And a lot of sermons I heard had that theme. Just put in different people. Well, this is David, and David was a great man who did great things for God. Or here's Paul. Paul's a great man who did great things for God. That, that became this, that I started hearing this, this message over and over again. I thought, okay, well, if that's true, then I'm supposed to become a great person so that I can do great things for God. So I thought I need to do more. I need to be more, I need to pray more, I need to read more. I need to do something to become a super person so that I can do great things for God. The problem with that message, it makes the wrong person the hero, do you understand? Because in Exodus, Moses is not the hero. The gospel, the good news that Christ tells us is not be really awesome and do great things for God. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the goodness of Jesus is not that we're awesome, but that God is awesome. God is the hero of the story, not us. Not Moses, not David, not Paul. These people are And what's funny is we take them and elevate them, but the Bible doesn't elevate them. The Bible reveals their warts, their limitations, their awfulness. The Bible does not sugarcoat any of these characters. Reading, we just read Genesis together as a church. There's some R-rated stuff in there. I mean, it's make you blush. I went to public school, and I'm still blushing. You know what I'm saying? There's some stuff in the Bible that's rowdy. Um, So... I want to change the narrative. Instead of Moses, the great man who did great things for God, let's instead talk about Moses, a sinner called by a holy God. Moses, a sinner called by a holy God. 
Let's break this this sentence down. We'll break this sentence down one phrase at a time. First, Moses is a sinner. Here's the context. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac, he had Jacob. Jacob has how many sons? Twelve sons. Joseph, number 11, goes to Egypt enslaved. From slavery to prisoner to number two in Egypt, his wisdom and his God-ordained interpretation of dreams saves the entire empire. Joseph brings his 11 brothers and his father into Egypt. They get good land, a good place to live, and Pharaoh loves Joseph, so Pharaoh loves Joseph's family. And they have this awesome neighborhood in Egypt where they can raise their families and feed their cattle, and life is good. But time goes on. These 70 people, this tribe of 70, become 200, become 500, become 1,000, become 5,000. One day, Pharaoh's like, why are there 5,000 Jewish immigrants in the middle of Egypt? And his wise man's like, well, your great-great-grandpappy loved Joseph, this guy's grandfather. And Pharaoh's like, well, I don't know this guy. And he was worried. He goes, they're getting so, there's so many of these Jewish immigrants. What if they rebel? What if they rise up within us and they cause a ruckus? So he decides. We got we to slow these guys down. And he enslaves the Hebrew people. It says in Exodus 1, verse 7, and there arose a Pharaoh over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And the Hebrews are enslaved. But even under the whip, the Hebrews keep on multiplying. Their people just grows and grows and grows. Finally, Pharaoh, one of the Pharaohs over hundreds of years, a Pharaoh decides, I gotta stop this growth by any means possible. And a Pharaoh decides, I'm going to commit infanticide to stop these people. He commands his armies to take all the baby boys that are born and throw them in the Nile River. If there are no boys, no more babies, right? We'll slow down a whole generation. They go through certain neighborhoods of the Hebrews' camps and begin taking the children. One Hebrew mother is like, there's no way you're taking my baby from me. And she hides her child. But you can't hide a baby too long, can you? They cry, man, they're loud. And so she builds this ark, this, this basket. She takes reeds and mud and she makes it. And she brings it to the river and she puts her son in there. And she puts this boy on the river and she's like, Lord, you take care of my son. And she entrusts that baby to the Lord. In the same way, you can imagine maybe a young girl getting pregnant I don't know what to do and putting her child up for adoption and begging God, God, I don't know how to raise this child, but I give this, this child, Lord, take this child into adoption and take care of them as they go into the world. In that same way, Moses' mom gives Moses to the Lord, says, Lord, take care of my baby. And down the Nile, Moses goes. And a crazy thing happens. His basket does not flip over. He's not drawn to sea and die through exposure. Instead, that little basket is drawn to an inlet and brought 
the palace of Pharaoh, where Pharaoh's daughter finds the basket and finds the baby and decides, I'm, I'm a, this is my baby now. And take baby Moses decides to raise him. And Moses is raised in the palace of Pharaoh. Moses, this Hebrew who should have been killed, sleeps on silk sheets and eats fresh fruit every day. To us, it's like, who cares? Listen, back in the day, fresh fruit and silk sheets, that was not the world. There was peasantry or there was wealth. That's it. There was no middle class that we have in America. Moses is a rich man. As it goes into a man, he realizes something. He realizes, I am not Egyptian. I am a Jew. I belong. My people are the people outside under the whip. My prosperity and my privilege is born on their backs. And we find this, this scene in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses has not yet met the Lord. The world Moses knows is might makes right. Violence is the answer. He sees this taskmaster unjustly beating a Hebrew slave, one of his people. So he, I love the double take he does. He looks this way and that. Now, we've all done that move, right? And when you do that move, you know you're wrong, right? We were, we were visiting some friends, and uh, we were all outside. I was down in Phoenix, and um, it's me and uh, Angie and some friends of ours sitting, having, like, coffee, talking. And across the yard, there's a the kids on a trampoline playing. And someone decides to tell an off-color joke. And they're, like, all 9, 10, 11 years old. They're little. But they're going to tell a dirty joke. And I, I, I got good hearing. I'm, I'm a parent. I'm always watching always watching, and I'm always looking around, <laughs> and I see a head look up, and like, dude, dude, I'm like, I really need to pay attention, because that's the look before someone does something really dumb, and they told the dirty joke, and I heard it, and later on, I'm like, did you tell a dirty joke? No, dad, never. That look, he's like, I'm sorry, dad, <laughs> but that move reveals that Moses knew he was about to do wrong. He knew what he was going to do was evil and wrong. He wants to murder this man. And he looks, and he kills him dead. Cold-blooded murder, and he buries his body in the sand. And from that one action, Moses will be exiled from his adopted family and even from his own kinsmen. Even the Hebrews are like, get away from me, you killer of men. Moses is a sinner, a cold-blooded murderer. He murdered a guy. And his anger, that rage that caused him to kill that guy, never goes away. If you read Moses' whole life, he will never get his anger in check. There's a scene where he comes down from the mountain of God with the Ten Commandments, and the nation of Israel all like dancing and partying with the golden calf, and he sees it. Now, 
the, the Ten Commandments he has were literally inscribed by the hand of God. Like God wrote down his law for humanity. This is the most valuable artifact on the face of the planet. He sees it going on, he's like, stinking Hebrews, blah, blah, and he breaks them. And come back up later on, the Lord's like, let's do this again. This time, you draw the tablets. Straight up, I read it. Moses is like, that's, what, that's life. His anger will come back to bite him. At the end of Moses' life, he, at, at the end of his life, he will be on a mountaintop, and he will see the land of promise. He will see the thing he's been walking to for the last 40 years, and he will lay down and die and never enter because the anger in his own heart. Moses is a sinner. And so are we. I spoke this word at Fenton, Michigan, Saturday night. And I said, I said to the people, you are sinners. I got a few looks back. Like, who are you? Like, what's funny is when I was in Carriagetown this morning at the homeless shelter, People were like, I am a sinner preacher. Like people, it's funny. You go to a place where there's success, where there's wealth. People feel like I've done good in my life. I've accomplished great things in my life. There's a feeling of I'm a decent guy. I'm a pretty okay woman. I'm all right. I'm not that bad preacher. You go to the homeless shelter. Everyone's like, I know I'm a mess. It's funny. People at the homeless shelter, everyone's like, I know I'm a sinner. It was that, that, that acceptance of who you really are. I'm going to go to Revelation uh, chapter 3 real quick. It's kind of like this. I love this little line from the scriptures. Revelation 3.17. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's who we are before the Lord. Our goodness, our strength, our might before him is as filthy rags. We are sinners. And some people, one guy, after I preached at Fenton last night, one guy said to me, thanks, Pastor, make me feel bad about myself. But here's the thing. Admitting you're a sinner is freeing. I don't got to pretend that I know what I'm doing. I don't walk around pretending that I'm big stuff and I know everything and I'm never afraid. No, I can say, man, I need. I, I am limited. I am weak. I am afraid. I, I get spooked. I fall down. I have days where I am weak and fickle and impatient. I don't have to pretend that I'm awesome. I am a sinner and so are you. We do evil things before the Lord and to the people that we love. We are sinners, but thanks be to God that God calls sinners to himself. Moses is not the hero. God is the hero. God calls Moses the sinner. God, so Moses is a sinner called by a holy God. Listen to what it says. 2.23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. 
And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his coming with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. The people have been in bondage for 400 years. Last service, I said, <laughs> I said my wife was born in 1776, and I just moved on. People are like, dang, I'm like, you like those older women, don't you? Um, but <laughs> so I meant 1976, but I know that because she was born in America's bicentennial, right? 1976, America turned 200 years old. They had a big old birthday party in D.C. and everything. You watch it on YouTube in awesome, you know, standard definition. But 200 years, okay? At that moment in America's history, we were half of the age that Israel was in bondage. That's like 10 to 20 generations of people born as slaves who would call to God and they would die never seeing God's deliverance come. 400 years, but it says here that God heard his people as they cried out to him. The God we serve is not a God who is passive and unable to act. The God of the scriptures is a God who moves, is a God who hears the cries of his people and acts on their behalf. God hears his people cry, like, I'm going to deliver them. I am going to deliver my people from bondage. And how does he choose to do it? He could choose to do it himself. He could send his angels just blah, 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 and blowing up, and everyone's free. But instead, God, as he works in the world, chooses to call sinners to join him in the act of redeeming the world for his name's sake. He, we, through Christ, become co-laborers with him. God is on mission and invites us to join him. He is the hero of the story. He's the main star. And we get to be a co-star. And Not even a co-star. We're like, you know, like a key grip. We get to be, we're in the movie though, you know, which is awesome. We get to come alongside and be a part of God's mission as he reaches the world. Listen to what it says. It says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So Moses has fleed from Egypt. He's been married. He has kids. And he works for his wife's father, his father-in-law. So he's out there with these sheep. They're not even his sheep. Like he don't own McDonald's. He works for McDonald's. You understand? That's his life. He's thinking, watching these sheep. And he noticed something odd on this mountain. Angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses is something very, very odd. He sees this, this bush, this small tree, and it seems to be on fire. But it's not really fire because the fire, like fire eats things and it becomes ash, right? But this thing is on fire and it's not turning into ash. I love this because Moses, as he says, he's trying to understand what he's seeing, and his world, what, okay, so in his world, what produces light? Fire. Like, the only thing he's ever seen in his life that produces light is fire. He's like, well, this produces, this produces light. 
and it looks, it, it, maybe it's wavy and light, glowy. It's kind of like fire, only it doesn't do the burning part that fire does. So he calls it the burning bush that burned but was not consumed. But he's seeing truly the glory of the Lord shining out from this, this small tree. And then a voice comes out. It says, verse 3, Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight while the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And God calls Moses by name. Moses, Moses. Moses is like, I'm right here. God is going to call Moses to join him on the mission of setting the Hebrew captives free. Moses is a sinner called by a holy God. And the same way Moses called, we are called to join him on this mission. And the way you join him is very different than, than your neighbor. How do you say it? There's a lady on the east side, at her east side campus, church. She is an older woman. She, in her life, she cared for both her parents as they died. She, she was the nursemaid to her mother who died, and then she was the nursemaid to her father who died. So she had to care for and then bury the only people she had in her life, and now she's alone in the world. No family. Her and her dog and her cat. But she loves the Christ. And down the street, she has a neighbor. And the neighbor is a 70-year-old widow. Her husband has died, and she's alone in the world. And she has living with her in this one house, 70-year-old widow, her 50-year-old daughter, and her 30-year-old developmentally disabled granddaughter who needs constant attention and will need that attention her entire life. This widowed grandmother single mom, disabled granddaughter, have no vehicle, have no car, and they're in a rowdy neighborhood on the east side of the city. So this woman sees them in their, in their lack, sees them in their need, and she befriends them. It gives them rides to Dollar General to get groceries. When power goes out, goes out, walks on the street, you guys okay over here, need anything? She just watches out for them. There's this lady, this lady who buried her mother and father, this lady who just is a simple lady with a dog and a cat who just keeps to herself in a lot of ways. She'll never be on a magazine cover. She'll never be a star of a movie, never be interviewed by a podcast, right? But God has called her to be a light in her neighborhood. God has called her to be the love of Christ on her street. And she has faithfully, and lovingly been Christ to her neighbor who no one else even know exists. That is a mission God has called her to be on. Now, I don't know what God has called you to be on. What mission? I don't know how you're going to join the Lord in mission. Maybe you're here and you stay at home with the kids. And God has called you to raise your children under the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That is a high and holy calling. Maybe God has called you and gifted you to be a mechanic. Well, do that to the glory of the Lord. Go to your mechanic shop and you be the light 
in that shop, maybe in your family, you're one of the only believers in your family, then you be the light. Even if you're the oddball weirdo, you be the light of God in your family. You are, all, every one of us is called to join God in mission. And it doesn't have to be on a stage or in a foreign land. We've all been given a place to be on mission wherever we happen to dwell. We are all called to love Christ wherever he has placed us. Moses is a sinner who is called by a holy God. Moses is a sinner who is called by a holy God. The text says this. Then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. One of the most used adjectives in the Bible about God is the word holy. At the end of the story of Revelation, you find the angelic host singing a song before the throne. They say all day and all night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This refrain that God is holy is often used to describe who God is, but a lot of us have no idea what it means that God is holy. We know what it means that God is loving. We know what it means that God is just. But what does it mean that God is holy? This word really has two strong um, imperatives that come from it. God being holy means that he is high and lifted up. He's above. But it also means he's set apart, different than we are. He is not like us. The Romans... Um, the Romans have a pantheon of gods. We've watched all the movies and seen it. Jason and the Argonauts and stuff. I watched those movies too when I was a kid. But the Roman gods are all really funny, like Hercules. Ro Roman or Greek? Okay, well, he's Greek, but it's close enough. So Hercules, the Greek god, all he is is a dude who's really, really strong. And Athena is a girl who's just really, really pretty. Like the, the Greek and Roman gods are just like us, just turned up to 11, you know what I'm saying? The God of the Bible is not like us. So for example, okay, I'll say this for free. Here's a free one for you. If the God you worship and the God you say you believe in agrees with every opinion you got about politics, about life, then you have ceased to worship the Lord and have worse, worse, you're worshiping an idol made in your own image. Because God is not like you and he's not like me. He don't look like me. He don't talk like me. How is God different than we are? Okay, I was born in 1980 and someday I will die. Hopefully down the road a little bit. But the Lord, the God of heaven doesn't have a birthday. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He's eternal. We all have an end to our strength. Some of us are in better shape than others. Um, I always say that being in good shape is very simply, I, get, I can hike any, any hill, in, I can hike any trail in Michigan. The difference between me and someone who's in good shape is I pay for it more the next day than somebody else. You know what I'm saying? I can hike the trail today, I just can't move tomorrow. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but strength runs out. My strength will run out. I, I 
if you've ever done any like boxing in your life or ever done any physical combat in your life, like I, I when college used to have a boxing club in our college, and I thought I was big stuff. I'm strong, I'm big, I take a punch. But you get in a ring with someone to box, and you're 90 seconds in, and you are gassed out of your mind. Like you can't hold your hands up. You're like, ooh, ooh. I, I, I can win the fight if it lasts under two minutes. But other than that, I'm losing. Because strength, strength runs out, right? The God of heaven, his strength has no end. He's all powerful. Our knowledge is limited. I don't know everything. My kids will come to me. I have two kids come to me, my, my son and daughter, and the son will be like, Dad, she did this. He's like, no, Dad, he did that. And I'm like, I don't know who's lying. Because I wasn't there. I didn't see it. My knowledge is limited. The God of heaven knows all things. He's all-knowing. He sees through our... He sees through our self-deception. He sees through our lies. God knows what really is true. The God we serve is not like us. He's not flesh. He is spirit. He's not bound to one place. He is at all places at all times. We serve a God who is great. He is not merely good. He is good. He's also great. High and lifted up. Greater than we are. Worthy of our worship and our praise. I'll say it like this. So my children have two uncles. Uncle Tony, Uncle Jesse. And they're good uncles. They come over, they hug on them, kiss on them. Oh, I love you. Oh, just love on the kids. And the kids, in their mind, Uncle Tony, Uncle Jesse are the sweetest most gentle men they've ever met in their lives. But we'll go to my mom's house sometimes, and mama will my mom will tell stories about the brothers and the wars we've been in, the fights she's seen us fight, us coming home bloodied and battered and laughing the whole time. And the kids have come to realize, like, wow, Uncle Tony's all sweet. He's an MMA fighter. And Uncle Jesse, so nice, but his knuckles are razor blades. That's so crazy. They realize their sweet, affectionate uncles, though loving and kind, there is great power behind the smile. The God we serve is loving and kind. He is our good, good father. He forgives us of our sin, but our God will not be mocked. He is high. He is holy before us. So what do we do with the, that, the fact that we have a holy God? I'll simply say this as an application, then we'll kind of close our time. Sometimes when we sing worship, sometimes when we sing worship together, we'll raise our hand up in the air to sing. And that's, that's awesome. In the Bible, people do raise their hands to worship God. That's an awesome, it's a way of showing receptivity. God, I want, I'm opening myself to you. Hand, you don't have to, but if you want to, you can, okay? There's another move in the Bible that we seldom do. A, a posture many of us have never used. In the Bible, when sinful people would come into the presence of a holy God, they would often fall down on their face. Isaiah fell down like a dead man before the Lord. You see people praying often on their faces, spread on the floor before a great and powerful God. There are times in my own prayer life where the weight of my sin is so great, I find myself on my knees, then on my face, 
sorrowful of my sin and grateful the God of heaven does not destroy sinners anymore. In your prayer life, as you pray to the Lord, if you've never, ever gotten low before the Lord in awe and reverence, I encourage you. You must remember, the God that you and I serve, our God is holy. He is strong. He is great. He is mighty. And though he is our good, good father, our father, he's, he's great and mighty. And sometimes in the presence of such great and such might and such holiness, the appropriate response is to bow down our heads lower to the ground in awe and reverence of the one we love and worship. So I encourage you, bow down before your maker. He is our creator. He is our Lord, our master, our king. I always say, I will, when I was in college, I, um, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. When I was in college, I betrayed the brotherhood at one point. Um, the guys were doing a prank and I ratted them out and they got really mad. So they came uh, to get me, to prank me, to make me pay for, give it to, for telling on them, for tattling. So they came to get me, about 20 guys, and I decided, you ain't pranking me because I'm, I'm a bad man. And so a massive wrestling match ensued, one versus 20. It sounds kind of um, far-fetched, but you can, like people, there are people that were there that can witness these, these events. Now, I lost this wrestling match because it was one versus 20. Um, but in the midst of this fight, at one point, they, they had me on the ground. I had one guy was sitting like on my back. One guy was sitting on my leg. One guy, sitting on my, one guy had an elbow in my neck. I was like, I was like a uh, Spider-Man superhero in a crazy supermax prison. Just every limb had a different person holding me down. And the RA came over, and he got down by my face, and he said, Ernesto, we'll let you up. All you got to do is say uncle. All you got to do is tap out, and we'll let you get up. No harm, no foul. And I'm such a proud butt. I was like, you got to knock me out, because I ain't never saying uncle to you. And so they knocked me out. Um, <laughs> But I say that because I'm such a proud man. I've always said I bow my knee before no man. I always talk all this trash. I'm never bowing the knee. But I've, as I've gotten older, I've learned I bow the knee before one. And that is the Lord God of heaven. He is worthy of our submission. He is worthy of our reverence. He is worthy to be worshipped by all of our being. So I encourage you, worship the Lord in awe and reverence. With that said, let us pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you call sinners to yourself. You invite sinners to join you on your great mission of making your son's name known in all the earth. You've called us all to different corners of this globe, into warehouses, into companies, into families, into neighborhoods. You call us to join you in bringing your glory before the faces of all men and women. 
We are sinners, so we confess our sin. Help us to accept the call you give to us, Lord. And in, in reverence, let us bow before you who are holy. We love you very much, Jesus. In Christ's name we ask all these things. Amen.